Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. We're in Isaiah 46, if you want to turn your Bibles there. God, I thank you and praise you for your word, um, that it uh, doesn't return void. I thank you for the promises found within, and and really, Lord, the things that we can learn, even from the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before Christ came, Lord, and just your heart uh, for your people, your heart um, against the idolatry of the nation and against uh, any idolatry, anything that would take uh, your spot in our hearts, Lord, you stand against, and uh, I'm grateful for that. I pray that you would just help us to study your word now, God, as you guide us through. We thank you for your love and mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, We're working our way through the the second half, if you want to call it that, of the book of Isaiah. Beginning with chapter 40, it really takes a turn uh, in its focus. The first 39 chapters were... Uh, speaking of the the Assyrian mount that was coming against the nation of Israel, how it was going to come up to the city of Jerusalem, but then not overcome the city. And that's in fact what happened. That's what uh, uh, God said would happen. That's exactly what happened. That's the the angel of the Lord fell 185,000 of the Assyrian soldiers in one night. And then you get to chapter 40, and we see the marvelous attributes of God. I love chapter 40, uh, quoted it even on Sunday. Um, that, I, that we, we get to see just how big our God is. And then from that point, he begins to really rail against the, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, for their idolatrous hearts. They, um, at the time that Isaiah was writing these things, the people of God weren't even listening. They weren't listening to Isaiah. They weren't listening to God. They weren't, li- they weren't following the, the, the things that had been established for them as a nation they were chasing after the things of this world. I like to call them the shiny things of the world. They were, they were into that kind of stuff, and, and they had just kind of turned off the God switch. Isaiah's writing everything down as he's receiving it from the Lord so that when their hearts were stirred once again, when their, when their eyes and their, their souls were awakened once again for the things of God, they would see that all along God was saying, I see, this is, this is why we wanted to avoid these things. But because they had failed to give the land the Sabbath rest that God said that the land should give, he's, and because of their idolatrous hearts, he says, fine, you guys want idols? I'm going to send you to the place of idols, and that's to Babylon. Uh, and so we, we know of the Babylonian captivity. We've studied through the book of Daniel and Ezra and Nehemiah and, and all those books. We understand the history of those things. But what's amazing to me, and I keep want to, want to refresh our minds of this, that as we're reading of the Babylonian captivity in Isaiah, it's still 200 years before it happens. <laughs> this is all prophecy. This is Isaiah doesn't know who Cyrus is, even though he's writing the name of Cyrus. Isaiah doesn't know that the, the Babylonian empire is going to rise. He's still worried about the Assyrians. Babylon's just kind of a blip on the map. Nebuchadnezzar probably hasn't even been born yet, or if so, he's just an infant at this point. Let alone the rise of the Babylonian Empire, and then what Isaiah is writing about is the fall of the Babylonian Empire that's going to be replaced by the Medo-Persians, and that's where we get this name 
Cyrus that we've been hearing through the past couple weeks. The, the railing against idolatry is going to continue as we pick it up in chapter 46. It says in 46 verse 1, it says, Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols were on the beasts and on the cattle. Your carriages were heavy loaded, a burden to the weary beast. So this is an interesting accusation by God against the nation of Babylon specifically against their gods. He's naming two of their premier gods that they worshipped within the region of Babylon, both Bel and Nebo. Bel was the god of strength or power, and Bebo, or Nebo rather, sorry, Nebo was the god of wisdom. So every year they would have this feast within the the city of Babylon, where they would get their idols, their gods. They would get a bunch of guys because they were big gods, and they would lift up their god, and they would put it on a cart, and they would give a tour of the city to these gods on these carts, where oxen had to pull them. And it was not an easy thing because of the size of these statues. And God is saying, what an interesting picture and you can almost hear the disdain in the, in the language, and you're going to hear some divine irony and all kinds of stuff today, tonight, but it, it, there's almost this disdain where God is saying, that's interesting, you, you have to, you, you, put your, you put your God of power onto a cart, and he has to be pulled around. You, you, you lend your God of wisdom, Nebo, to the dumbest animal there is. <laughs> to an ox, and an, an, an ox pulls him around, a beast of burden, as it were, pulls around the god so that he can see the city. What an, what an interesting thing you've got going on there in Babylon, is what God would say. A burden to weary the beast, it says there at the end of verse 1. It says, they stoop, they bow down together, they could not deliver the burden but, ha- but have themselves gone into captivity. He says, listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been upheld by me from birth, who have been, carry- who have been carried from the womb. And therein lies the contrast, and the thing that you and I need to recognize is that in Babylon... They had to carry their gods. And what God is saying there in verse 3 is, no, I've carried you. You don't carry me. I've carried you. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been upheld by me from birth. I'm the one that's carried you. I've, I've taken care of you. I've, uh, I've made you, I, I will bear, and even I will carry and will deliver you. This is God saying, I've got you. And that's the, that's the proper relationship for a God, isn't it? It's not, it shouldn't be that we have to carry our God around. It should be that I don't want to worship a God that I've got to carry around. That doesn't make sense. Uh, why would I do that? But that's what they were chasing after. God, in comparison, would say, no, 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 no. I've carried you. And look at verse 4. Even to your old age, I am he. Even to your gray hairs, I will carry you. 
I have made and I will bear. Even I will carry and will deliver you. God's saying, not only have I carried you from birth, my promise to you is, to you is I'm going to carry you throughout all of your life, even to your old age. There's, there's, um, there's two times in our lives when we become dependent upon other people. And that's at the beginning of our lives when we're an infant and we aren't capable of doing anything for ourselves. But then very often at the end of our lives, as we grow into old age, we once again cannot rely on our own strength and and so once again become dependent upon other people. And I think most of us would recognize that. But what we forget about is that from every moment in between, from beginning to end, we have always been and always will be fully dependent upon God. It is He that holds us together. It is He that made us in our mother's womb. It is He that uh, supplies all of our need according to His riches and glory. It is He that gives us the breath in our lungs. It is He that gives us the ability to earn a paycheck. It is He who gives us a home, a food on our table. It is He who gives us family and friends to fellowship with. We are fully fully dependent upon God. And the beautiful thing is, is that in this promise in verses 3 and 4, God is saying, even though their hearts are 100 miles from where God is right now, God is saying, no, I'm carrying you. And, and, And it's not a burden for me. Right? Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. You know, just think about that for a second. The, the, the first couple of verses there in the chapter, the, the, the burden of those gods, Nebo and, what were their names? Nebo and Bel. They were, they were, they were heavy to, their, to their, the beasts of burden, to the ox. They, they weighed them down. Jesus says, no, no, no. When, when you follow me, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If what you're doing, even if even if you're doing it in the name of God, if what you're doing for God is a burden to you, then is it really of God? I mean, he says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. I think uh, he, he enables us in those things. And um, I'm reading through a book called um, The, uh, the hand, Handbook to the Servant or something like that. One of Gail Irwin's books. And and he was talking about that just to say, you know, Jesus promises us that his yoke is easy, his burden is light. And so the question then becomes, if even what I'm doing, if what I'm doing for God were to become a burden, is it truly of the Lord? Because it's contradictory if it's a burden to me, but what Jesus gives me, my burden is light, then, then is it really of God to continue in that? And then that echoes in verses 3 and 4 to say, no, I, I carry you. I'll deliver you. From, from the cradle to the grave, God takes care of us. Verse 5, and this is a question we've heard many times throughout the recent chapters. It says, to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? That's really what God has been doing over the last several chapters is putting on trial these idols and these false gods and and saying, let's set them up and let's give them an opportunity to go toe-to-toe with the God of the universe, our God, Jehovah God, and let's see how they fare. 
To whom will you liken me? And the answer is to no one. Our God is incomparable. There's nobody we can compare him to. We, don't, we lose adjectives. We, we, we don't have enough descriptor words to describe the, the beauty and the, the power and the strength and the might and the knowledge of our God. We can't liken him to anybody. It says in 6, they lavish gold out of the bag and weigh silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith and he makes it a god. They prostrate themselves. Yes, they worship. What? <laughs> That's idolatry for you. You have to pay to make your god. <laughs> they gather together silver and gold. They, they take all this money and they take it to the god maker who lives down the street from them and says, here, take my money and call me and let me know when, the, uh, when my God is done. I'll come pick him up because obviously he can't come to me. I got to come to him and get him. It's, logically, it's preposterous. And I think you and I and everybody in this room can see that, but people get blinded to it. It doesn't make, it doesn't make sense, but that's what they would do. They, in order to, to give their God value, they would onlay gold. They would onlay silver to show that they have a valuable God. They'd hire the goldsmith. And then they lay down, they prostrate themselves. They worship at the feet. And God is saying, can you really compare that which you have to make, that which you have to pay for, that which you have to wait for a phone call in order to say, hey, come pick up your God? Can you really compare that to me? Verse 7, they bear it on the shoulder. They carry it. And they set it in its place. Don't forget, you have to nail your God down so that it doesn't fall over, so that it doesn't you know, move on you. You have to nail, nail the God down. And what I love is our God can't be nailed down. From its place it shall not move. Though one cries out to it, yet it cannot answer, nor save him out of his trouble. And that's the tragedy of following false gods is their inability to redeem, is their inability to save in times of trouble. And, we, and, and they chased after those things, and yet they were unable to deliver. And that's the tragedy of these things is though they would pour out their gold, though they would wait on the goldsmith to make it, they'd pick it up on their shoulder, they'd set it in place. The tragedy is the bottom of verse 7 Though one cries out to it, yet it cannot answer nor save him out of his trouble. Compare that to our Redeemer. Compare that to our Deliverer who is always present and ready in a moment of need. He hears our cries and He answers our cries. Not only did He redeem the people from Babylon, not only did he bring them back and redeem them and, and, and was their salvation in this moment, he is our salvation yet today. It says in verse 8, remember this and show yourselves, men. He's saying, remind yourself of these things because you're not listening now. Read these things when your eyes and your hearts are open. Recall to mind, O oh, you transgressors. Bring these things up and, and remind yourself when you're in captivity that I have written these things beforehand. 
Use some logic when your eyes are open and you'll see the, the foolishness of chasing after false gods, of placing your affection into something that is unable to deliver you. Did you guys hear that um, um, Ronda Rousey was on Ellen DeGeneres yesterday? Ronda Rousey was one of the best, well, she was the best female MMA fighter uh, for years, it seemed like. Went undefeated for a long, long time up until her last fight, which was about six weeks or seven weeks ago. And she got crushed. I can't remember the name of the girl that beat her, but she just got, I mean, she, Ronda Rousey was like the star of the, of the whole MMA scene. I mean, there are some guy fighters that, um, that are famous and, and have, have their names well known, but everybody in MMA knew who Ronda Rousey was, and many people outside of MMA know who she was. She's an attractive girl. She was she modeled and all. And she was very outspoken. She was very confident. Some would say cocky uh, and arrogant. And um, and she was you know talking trash and all. That's the way she. That's the persona she puts on. And all before this fight, she was talking trash and 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 building up this fight. And then she just got cold cocked, knocked out. It wasn't a it wasn't a fight by decision. She got laid out unconscious. And she came on Ellen DeGeneres yesterday, and she said in the moments after the fight and, and uh, while she was back in the locker room as she, um, you know, as she started realizing what had happened and she recognized that she had lost everything, um, she told you know, Ellen yesterday that she seriously considered committing suicide because she had lost everything that she identified herself with. All of her... All, all that she was, she said, you know, what people won't give a bleep about me anymore because I've lost. And she had lost her identity because she had placed her identity in success. Success is an idol. Success, you know, we don't worship gods of gold and silver so much anymore, although I guess you could argue that many do. But an idol can be anything that would take the place of God. It can be fame, it can be fortune, it can be success, it can be academics, it can be sports, it can be anything that would take the place of God. And, and, and the God in Ronda Rousey's life was her success, and the moment that was taken from her, she no longer recognized who she was. She lost her identity. Um, I follow ESPN on Instagram, and they posted about it this morning, that's how I picked up the story on it. And I just, I put in the comments. Of course, she'll never read it. No point. Maybe nobody ever will. But I said, you know what, Rhonda, you need to find your identity in Jesus Christ. Because when our identity is in him, that can never be taken from us. I mean, the world can take everything else. Every title that I own, that I, that I call myself by, can be taken from me in one form or another. I could stop being a pastor. I could stop being a husband or a father. I could, uh, you know, tragic, those all would be tragic. I could, I could, those all could be taken from me, a bass player or whatever. All of that could be taken from me. But what can't be taken from me is my identity in Christ. And when we find our identity in Christ, then though the world would come against us, though our world might get rocked, we wouldn't ever get to the point that Rhonda got to. And to question, who am I? If, if we keep our mind focused on that to say, 
like it says there in verse 8, remember this and show yourselves men. Recall to mind, you transgressors. Remember where you are. Remember where you came from. Remember whose you are. And if you do that, then you find your identity in the right place, and that is in our God. It says in verse 9, remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. We've heard that line over and over in the past several chapters. God is saying, I'm incomparable. There is nothing that compares to me. But he says at the beginning there, remember the former things of old. He's saying to the nation of Israel, remember all that I've done for you. We read in 1 Samuel chapter 7, right? The story of Ebenezer where uh, they build a a, a mound, a a rock of remembrance. That's what the word Ebenezer means. And and they built it because they wanted everybody to see it and to remember how far God had brought them. That's that's why we sing in Come Thou Found. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come. God's taken care of me thus far. That's, That's the idea of Ebenezer. God has provided for me to this point. And that's what he's saying there in verse 9. Remember the former things of old. Remember how I delivered you out of Egypt. Remember how I cared for you throughout the promised land, that your sandals didn't grow uh, old, that you had food every day, that you had water no matter where you went, that you had a cloud covering by day and fire by night. And remember those things, how I've cared for you, and and that that I'm the one that did it, he's saying, and that there's no other gods. I am God, and there is none like me. Verse 10, and this is the, the thing that, distinguishes God from all others is he declares or declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure the thing that God is capable of that nobody else is is he can declare the end from the beginning he he can see what tomorrow is going to bring this was 150 years before Cyrus rolls on the scene so I've said this a couple of times. Let's fast forward from 2016, 150 years, to 2166. What's McDonald's selling in 2166? Is it still going to be trillions and trillions served? Is it going to be the new tofu burger? Is it? Gonna, Lord, I hope not. Well, I won't be here anyway. I don't care what it is. <laughs> you know, will bacon be on the menu in 2166? Don't know. We can't tell. But God knows the end from the beginning. And he has a plan through it all. He says, my counsel shall stand. If it's written, if I've said it, bank on it. You can trust it more than the FDIC. And then he says at the end of verse 10 there, I'll do all my pleasure. (laughs) I'll do all my pleasure. Think about that for a second. Can you do that? Can you do all your pleasure? Well, I like to think so. Well, yeah, you try it for a while. See how it goes. I think, you know, a pleasure of mine would be to eat surf and turf every night. That would last about three nights, and then I'd be broke. And I would be out of surf and turf. I could live all my pleasure for about 72 hours. And then I'd be flat broke and and not able to do it anymore. But God's resources are limitless. And so he can say that. I'll do all my pleasure. Whatever I want to do, God is saying, I'm going to do it. My resources are limitless. I'm able to do it. Isn't it a good thing that God is for us and not against us? Think about that for a second. If God were against us and his resources limitless, 
I'm glad God's on our side. Um, verse 11, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. This is God putting his seal of approval on the man Cyrus. He says, calling a bird of prey from the east. Uh, Cyrus came from Medo-Persia, which is to the east. In fact, historians would say that um, Cyrus's standard was an eagle, uh, that the, the, the thing he carried before his armies was an eagle, a bird of prey, if you would. And so this is just a, another thing to say, this is who I have called. He says in verse 12, listen to me, you stubborn-hearted, who are far from righteousness. How much does God have to write out for them to say, oh, maybe he was right. I bring my righteousness near, it shall not be far off, my salvation shall not linger, and I will place salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. God is saying, I'm going to deliver you. Yes, you're going to Babylon for 70 years. Yes, you're going in captivity because I am chastising you, but I will pull you out of that. I will set my salvation in Zion. You will return, the remnant will rebuild, and we see those events take place and ultimately fulfilled in Christ, who sets his foot in Zion and bears a cross on, on a Skull Hill just outside the city of Zion, the city of Jerusalem, for my sin, for your sin. Not only does he offer salvation to the nation of Israel in that moment and in those days, but he offers salvation through what Christ has done in Zion for his glory to all of us. Chapter 47, come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called tender and delicate. This is now, chapter 47 is going to be spoken to the nation of Babylon, and God is going to say, Listen, yes, you are instruments in my hands for the purpose of judgment and chastisement against the nation of Jerusalem. But you took it too far, is what he's going to tell Babylon. You, you took matters into your own hands. You didn't respond or act the way that I wanted you to act. You have fallen, and so I'm going to punish you in the, in the, in the matter of this as well. Babylon will fall. And it says there, sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. The virgin daughter was the prized one, the one cared for, the one esteemed, the one that was vulnerable, the one that was cherished. And, and, and God is saying, you sit in the dust. You, you humble yourself is the idea. No more throne for you. You're going to fall. In fact, all will fall. Uh, you'll no longer be called tender and delicate. It says in verse 2, take the millstones and grind meal. Remove your veil. Take off your skirt. Uncover the thigh. Pass through the rivers. You were called the virgin daughter is what he's saying. You were, you were the esteemed one, but you shall be uh, reduced to servitude. Those, that's the idea of verse 2. You're going to remove your veil. You're going to take off your skirt and uncover your thigh. The, the, the point being for work, that you're, you'll pass through the rivers. You're going to end up being the, the, the servant who takes the millstones and grinds the meal. And the way that you took Israel captive, so you too will be led captive. It says in verse 3, your nakedness shall be uncovered. Your shame will be seen I will take vengeance, and I will not uh, arbitrate with a man. Your nakedness uncovered, 
very often when a, a people were displaced because of a, a, a victory of a country, when, when servants were moved from one location to another, uh, in order to shame them, in order to humiliate them, they would force the, the, the slaves to walk from one city to another entirely naked, removing everything that they owned, removing all of their clothing to make them walk in shame. And that's the idea here. God is saying, that's what you did to the nation of Israel. That's what I'm going to do to you. Your nakedness shall be uncovered. Your shame will be seen as God takes vengeance. It says there, I will not arbitrate with a man. This is non-negotiable is what he's saying. I've, I've settled it. That's what it said back in verse 10 of 46, declaring the end from the beginning from the ancient of times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. God's like, this is, there's no, this is not up for negotiation. I'm not going to argue with a man here. This is what I've decided. This is what will happen. Verse 4, as for our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel. This is great. This is a, almost a response of the people. Notice it's not in quotes. Verse 1 through 3, it's God speaking to the nation of Babylon. This is verse 4 now. It's, it's just almost a response. into their, when, when the people of Israel see their Redeemer coming, when they see God acting on their behalf, they, they, they worship Him. As for our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is His name, the Holy One of Israel. That's a, a song of praise, as it were. God then says, sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans. That's Babylon. For you shall no longer be called the Lady of Kingdoms. That's an interesting title. And if um, so, there's um, there's three really good spots to read in the scriptures uh, if you want to read about Babylon. Babylon is a recurring theme throughout the scriptures. Um, you can read Isaiah thirteen and fourteen, Jeremiah fifty and fifty one. And Revelation 17 and 18. Those, those six chapters, those three groups, are all great chapters on who Babylon is at different times, and, and, and each one representing different things. But if you go to the end of days and read in Revelation of Babylon in chapter 17 and 18, and you read of the harlot and all these kinds of things, uh, that one of the descriptors of, the, the, of Babylon in those times is, is this title, um, the Lady of Kingdoms. And it's not that phrase exactly, but it says that she has charge over the kingdoms. And so just an interesting, this may be, sometimes prophecy is, bo- is fulfilled both in a near fulfillment and in a far fulfillment. We kind of talked about that early on in the book of Isaiah uh, as we looked at the difference between God delivering from the Assyrians and the millennial kingdom at times. And so this could be Isaiah seeing both the near fulfillment as he, as he pulls the nation of Israel back out of Babylon, but also could be looking at the far fulfillment at the end of days when Babylon shall be the system of the earth and of Antichrist. He says in verse 6, God speaking, I was angry with my people. I have profaned my inheritance and given them into your hand. You... Babylon showed them no mercy. On the elderly, you laid your yoke very heavily, and you said, I shall be a lady forever, so that you do not, did not take these things to heart, nor remember the latter end of them. So verse 6, he says, 
Yes, I was angry with my people. I allowed them to be taken into captivity. But you didn't do what I had hoped you would do. You, you were heavy on them. You laid a heavy yoke on them. You didn't even care for the elderly. And that's not the way that God deals in correction. And that's not the way he instructs us to deal with, um, with correction. It says in Philippians, let me see if I can find it real quick. Oh, maybe it is. No. Maybe it's Galatians. See, if I had my notes, I'd be, I had it down. Yeah, Galatians chapter 6. It says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's the way you and I are commanded when we see a brother in sin. If you're more spiritual than them and you see a brother in sin, you restore them in gentleness. And that's not what Babylon did. They, they laid a heavy yoke on, on even the elderly. And so God's now going to take them to task because of the way they treated his people. Therefore, it says in verse 8, hear this now, you who are given to pleasures, and they certainly were, they lent themselves to whatever pleasure they wanted, who dwell securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is none, uh, none, no one else beside me. I shall not sit as a widow, nor shall I know the loss of children. They were so confident in their city protecting them that they thought they were untouchable. I'll not sit it as a widow. I don't need to worry about. We're safe here in Babylon. We just can lend ourselves to pleasure. We talked about the history of how Babylon fell, and you can read that in Daniel chapter 4 and get the details through Josephus and other historians. But Babylon fell in one night. They thought they were impenetrable. They thought they were impregnable. And, And they fell in one night. You, they, 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 they're so confident, they take on a voice of God almost. He's, they say there in the middle of verse 8, who say in your heart, I am and there's no one else besides me. Right? We saw that back in verse 9, God speaking it. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Verse 9 of 46. So they, they, they felt so confident and yet they fell. That's what it says. But these two things shall come to you, verse 9, in a moment, in one day the loss of children and widowhood they shall come up uh, they shall come upon you in their fullness because of the multitude of your sorceries for the great abundance of your enchantments because of the way that you have sinned against god these things your city will fall in one night and that's in fact exactly how it happened for you have trusted in your wickedness you have said no one sees me Your wisdom and your knowledge have warped you, and you've said in your heart, I am, and there is no one else beside me. When you say to yourself, no one sees my sin, you are duping yourself. You are fooling yourself. We have a God who sees all things. He is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-seeing. There is nothing. We cannot hide our sin from God. Let me ask you a quick question, and this this is a great way to test your heart. Just, just grab a hold of the initial response to this statement to see where your heart is. This is a great opportunity for you to test this. If I were to say, God sees everything that you do, 
Does that cause fear in your heart? Or does that cause blessing in your heart? Does that bless you to hear that? That that God sees everything I do? That I'm not outside the the realm of God? Or does that strike fear in your heart? God, God sees everything I do. That tells you where you are with God and maybe some of the things that you need to change in your life and take a hold of His grace and His mercy. Because He sees so that He can care for us, that He can bless us. His punishment poured out on His Son, Jesus. Verse 11, finishing up the chapter, Therefore evil shall come upon you, you shall not know from where it arises, and trouble shall fall upon you, you will not be able to put it off, and desolation shall come upon you suddenly, which you shall not know. Stand now with your enchantments and with and the multitude of your sorceries in which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you will be able to profit. Perhaps you will, be, will prevail. That's the divine irony, verse 12 there. Hey, just rely on the things that you've relied on all your life. Stand with your sorceries and your, um, your enchantments and all those things. Maybe they'll be able to deliver you. The things we talked about on Sunday, if you were here on Sunday, when we talked about the demoniac in Mark chapter 5 and how we and how a person come, becomes open to the demonic realm through um, sorceries and magic and, and those type things. We talked about the, the pharmacia, the, the hallucinatory drugs are a gateway for, for demonic activity. Those were the standard in Babylon. Everybody thinks, you know, dropping acid and doing meth or whatever, whatever is popular today, heroin or wherever. Everybody thinks that's a new thing. Dropping acid happened in Babylon. Hallucinatory drugs were a common thing in Babylon. And, and, and they, that's what it, it means there, the multitude of your sorceries. That's where Paul would translate that word as pharmakia or drugs. Stand with those, perhaps you'll be able to profit. You hear the irony there, of course you will not. Verse 13, you are wearied in the multitude of your counsels. Let now the astrologers, the stargazers, and the monthly prognosticators stand up and save you from what shall come upon you. Hey, just rely on your zodiac sign. I mean, it's, it gets you through every day, right? Check your zodiac to see how you're going to do today. Why don't you rely on those things? Call the psychic hotline. Maybe they can deliver you from the wrath that God is bringing. Of course, you have to pay them $3.99 a minute in order to get them to tell you. Never mind. Behold, they shall be a stubble. The fire shall burn them. They shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flame. It shall be a coal to be, it shall not be a coal to be warmed by, nor a fire to sit before you. Fire can be used for destruction, or fire can be a nice thing on a cold winter night. And God's saying, the fire that's coming is not going to be a nice thing on a cold winter night. It's going to be the thing that burns them. Thus shall they be to you with whom you have labored, your merchants from your youth. They shall wander each one to his quarter. No one shall save you. And that's the finality of it. And Babylon did fall. Though Nebuchadnezzar tried to buck against the, 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 the dream that he had of the image of the different metals that Daniel 
interpreted for him, right? The head of gold, the chest of silver, the legs of bron- the belly of bronze, and so on and so forth. And then in the next chapter, Nebuchadnezzar is building himself a 90-foot-tall idol of gold. And he's saying, ain't nobody going to take me down. Babylon fell at the hand of exactly who God said it would. None shall save because God had said it, just like it said back there in the verse 10 of 46, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times things are not, that are not yet done. Our God carries us. We don't carry our God. From the beginning of our life and even even before that, God orchestrates in our lives. From the beginning of our life to the end of our life, He carries us every moment of the day, all the time. May we rest in Him. Aren't we glad God is for us and not against us? Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Let's close in prayer. Thanks for bearing with me while I stumbled around a little bit, but... I think it came together. Thank God. Lord, thank you for your grace and your mercy poured out upon our lives. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you care for us from beginning to end. Thank you that you hold us in the palm of your hand, that you love us enough to die for us, that we have life everlasting because of our faith in you. We have been redeemed and forgiven. Lord, thank you that you have saved. I pray that as we go from this place, we would live our lives in a way to honor you, I pray, God, that we would uh, let our light shine before men, that people may see our good works and bring you glory. I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.